I think what it really comes down to is just wanting to be seen just in general. And I think it, it honestly has less to do with the scars themselves and has more to do with feeling like I have to keep up a facade or feeling like nobody knows who I really am, feeling like I'm not able to be honest about my struggles. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. A common question I've received is how we choose who to interview on our podcast. We often receive requests from people and their hired representatives to be interviewed on topics completely unrelated to non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. That is, people who simply want to self-promote. Nothing wrong with self-promoting, but our podcast focuses exclusively on NSSI, and it's important that we frame our interviews carefully and respectfully. To help facilitate these requests and other inquiries, We created a form in Google Docs that I quietly linked to the end of every new episode notes beginning four episodes ago, a formal way for people to request or offer to be interviewed, as long as we feel they're a good fit and can effectively articulate why they would like to be interviewed and what new information they would contribute that hasn't already been covered on the podcast. I hadn't announced this until now, today. But shortly after I had secretly added the link to the Google Forms document, I received an inquiry. Someone found it. Allison from the Seattle, Washington area. She wrote, I thought it could be helpful to do an additional episode where someone with lived experience could help listeners understand how and why scarring can be extremely important and meaningful to those who self-injure and the struggle that comes with wanting to show scars while at the same time feeling ashamed of them. I agreed. Allison is a graphic designer and tattoo artist based near Seattle, Washington. She holds a bachelor's degree in music and loves all things creative. Over the years, she has used creativity as an avenue to make sense of her struggle with self-injury, and her work has been published on the To Write Love on Her Arms blog, which I will link to in the show notes. She now volunteers as a mentor for high schoolers and finds opportunities to share her story of hope and healing. She lives with her husband of nearly five years and their three cats. Welcome to the podcast, Allison. So glad to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here. Jumping right into things, I know we're talking about your lived experience of self-injury, and I'm so grateful for you to be willing to share about that because we have so many people that listen that have lived experience of self-injury. And I know that hearing other people's stories of self-injury and lived experience can make many people feel less alone in their struggle. I'm always really grateful for that. To get an idea, using general terms, what was it that you did as a form of self-injury? Yeah, so it was primarily cutting, which started in my freshman year of high school. How did you end up deciding to cut when you were a freshman? It's kind of interesting. Like Sometimes I think people sort of fall into it by accident. They haven't really thought about it ahead of time. I had heard about it at some point in middle school, I think probably seventh or eighth grade. And for some reason, I just was, I guess, curious about it maybe. And I knew that it was wrong or something that, quote, normal people don't do. 
for some reason, it was just like in the back of my mind sometimes. And so in freshman year, I was going through a hard time and like stuff was really chaotic in my family. And I remember I, it was sort of like, I don't know if premeditated is the word, but like I had like purchased a tool and like hit it in my room and had this kind of like back and forth for a long time about like if I was going to let myself do it or not sort of. And then I ended up trying it when I think my parents were separated and I was like home alone or something. And I remember I went to bed. It was like, I think in the springtime, I went to bed and I had thought about it and I was like, no, I'm not going to do this. But if I still want to in the morning, then I will. And I did. So yeah, that was kind of how it started. And then it continued for a number of years. Yeah. So continued through high school and into college. And I would say was like the worst in the first couple years of high school. And then again, the first couple years of college. In between those times, there was less of it, I'd say. Looking back, we often talk about self-injury serving a function of some sort or having a reason that someone might harm themselves in such a way. Looking back, was there something that you found that it helped you in some way? Yeah, I think over time, the function of it has sort of changed. I think when I first started, it was, I grew up in like, a very Christian environment. And there's a lot of things you can and can't do a lot of the time. You're kind of told, these are the bad things, don't do them. These are the good things, do those. And it was sort of, I think, a way for me to like act out without feeling like I was going against any rules because nobody really tells you at any point in time, don't hurt yourself. It's just kind of like a given (laughs) for most people, I think. And so when I first started, it was partly, I think, a way to rebel, sort of, and then a way to express my feelings. I wasn't really able to at home. And so I spent a lot of time burying my feelings like at home or at school and pushing them aside. And then it was like, okay, now I can deal with it or now I can let it out kind of thing. So self-injuring helped you manage those emotions in those moments? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned your parents and them having separated and you're at home and not feeling like you could talk necessarily about emotions at times. Did they ever find out? Did they know? No, I never told them. I knew they wouldn't react well because I had already sort of tried to talk about feeling like I was maybe depressed and that conversation didn't go well. And so it was kind of like, it wasn't worth, it wasn't worth trying to talk to them about it. I actually, I don't know to this day if my mom knows or not, because there were a handful of times in high school where she would see like a scar somewhere or something and ask me where it came from. I just kind of like BS my way through it. I don't really remember what I said. And I don't know if she was suspicious and just never told me or if she really just was just asking just because. So they're not aware of the blog that you wrote for To Write Love on Her Arms? No. Yeah, I didn't tell them. Who in your life learned about the self-cutting as you grew older? 
when I first started, I told a couple of my friends. One of them told my youth pastor. So I didn't bring it to <laughs> to my youth pastor. It was I was tattled on. But it was actually a good thing because he and his wife were very understanding about it and they didn't like freak out or tell me that there was something wrong with me or anything like that. They did offer me some support. And at that point in time, I think I had already talked with them about other mental health issues and we'd already gone through trying to talk to my parents about it. And I think because that didn't go so well, they didn't really push me to tell anybody else about it. They weren't like, oh, you need to tell your mom or anything. Because I think they also realized that it probably wouldn't really help anything. So, You said that they were really supportive. What exactly did they do that was supportive and made you feel heard and understood? Well, I think my youth pastor was the one who actually told me about to write Love on Her Arms and like a conversation that we were having there about self-injury and everything. He was like, oh, this is a, a resource that you could try for some support. And his wife, she's like my mentor still to this day. She's super great. She helps me come up with ideas of things that I could do instead just asked me questions about how I was feeling and what kinds of things make me want to cut. And she did a good job of trying to help me process and also come up with other healthier coping mechanisms to use in, in those moments. That's great. And having a safe adult that you could talk to about these things, I think it is so important, especially for, I mean, you were a teenager at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to hear you use the term your friend tattled on you because when I <laughs> <laughs> when I talk to students about seeking support or this topic or others, a lot of the times I try to differentiate tattling from telling, snitching from mm -hmm. supporting. Mm -hmm. Tattling to an adult about something you're doing is to get you in trouble. Telling an adult about what you're going through is to get you help and support. Same thing about snitching. You know, snitching is to get in trouble. Yeah. Telling an adult for support is to get you the help. Yeah, it's interesting terminology, but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad your friend did. I'm glad your friend did. That was the right thing to do, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I was happy about it in the moment, but it definitely was a good thing that he went ahead and did that. And I love that you have a mentor. I think having a mentor, I mean, I've had my own and it's just life-changing. Not everyone has that opportunity. I don't know if you sought her out as a mentor or she sought you out. But for anyone listening, I, I recommend, yeah, seeking someone out. Ask someone that you see as a safe adult or friend that has some yeah. maturity level above you or life experience to mentor you is an honor to that person. I mean, of course, they could say no, but I love that you had that mentorship. Yeah, it happened kind of organically, I think, because I was fairly outgoing in middle school when I met them and they had moved up from Georgia to work at our church. So I was like, hey, welcome to town. Like, let's do something. <laughs> so I just kind of invited myself over <laughs> to their house and then it happened pretty naturally from there. So but yeah, they're like still really close family friends of me and my husband also. So. That's great. I love how you just put yourself out there. <laughs> and now you mentor other students. Yeah. Yeah, I do. You shared your experiences with self-injury with your youth pastor and his wife. Did you end up seeking professional help? 
did you seek therapy? And if not, how come? And if you did, what was helpful and unhelpful? When I was in high school, I saw, I think like my mom took me to one therapy session, counseling appointment, and I did mention the self-injury there and the lady just was kind of like, she didn't tell me not to, but what did she say? She was like, try to not hurt yourself too badly or don't cut too deep or like, I don't know, it was something like that. And I was like, okay. And then I left and then I didn't, I don't know if my mom just like didn't have money to keep sending me or something, but I never went back to her. So I I don't know if she was planning to continue that conversation with me. And that was just all she said initially, but that was my only experience while I still lived at home with my parents. And then when I moved to college, we had like a free counseling service available that way. So I did in the second half of freshman year, I signed up for that because I had a really hard time in the first semester. And I was like, I should just go ahead and do this. That was a really great experience for me because I have historically just had a really difficult time talking about just my feelings in general. And so getting to figure out how to verbalize some of those things with a counselor was super helpful. I really like how you put yourself out there multiple times, whether it's to your youth pastor and his wife, to see a therapist in college. It can be hard for some people to do. Mm -hmm. I wonder what enabled you to overcome any barriers or obstacles to seek therapy and help? Part of it was having support from friends or my husband, Zach. We were dating at the time in college, and he really encouraged me to seek help. He was like, you're not okay. (laughs) You need something. And I was like, it was really hard because I had thought about doing it once I got to college and it took me the semester before I finally was like, yeah, okay, I'll go ahead and talk to somebody. Yeah, I think having the support from people you trust where they can kind of push you in a nice way towards something better, I think can be really helpful. Yeah, and I'm glad that he did. I'm glad that you were able to seek that help. Was there anything in particular that you found helpful in therapy? There's a few things I would say One of the main things has just been, again, like learning how to verbalize my feelings and express my emotions and stuff. Because I just, the way I grew up, it was sort of like uncomfortable emotions are just bad. We don't really talk about them and we just kind of pretend like they don't exist. So I just didn't really have words for a lot of my feelings for a long time. And it's hard to process them if you can't even like wrap your head around what you're feeling. (laughs) So that was super helpful for sure. Also just learning some grounding strategies for when your brain is like spiraling, like the five, four, three, two, one sort of thing where you look for shapes and colors and stuff to like ground yourself in the present. And another thing I found really helpful was learning about how changes in your body state and like your temperature and stuff can reset your brain. So like taking a really hot shower, taking a really cold shower, going for a walk outside when it's cold out, those kinds of things can be really helpful for just short circuiting whatever your brain is stuck on. So stuff like that has been 
super helpful. And then over the past couple of years, I've been working working with. I've been seeing a therapist who does a lot of like trauma-based therapy and like EMDR and those sorts of things where I've been able to just process some of the traumatic experiences from my childhood and that has also been super helpful. You're mentioning the taking a cold shower, going outside for a walk in the cool air. The cold shower we talked actually in a recent episode in the neurobiology of self-injury and how that can activate the the vagus nerve and help us calm. So that's I love that you're doing that and applying that. Well, I know the primary reason for us to talk also about your story is a unique perspective that you have related to scarring in your relationship with your scars, especially over time. From your perspective, as someone with lived experience, can you talk about how and why scarring can be so important and meaningful to people who self-injure? One thing I have noticed about myself in the last few years, I haven't really, I wouldn't say I've been like, well, definitely haven't been like actively self-injuring, but I've had a couple of relapses here and there. And I've noticed that when I think about self-injuring, it's pretty much always with the intention of causing a scar. It used to be more like back in high school, I didn't really think about that very much. But as I've gotten older, I've noticed it's almost like the scar is the important part to me. And so I'll sort of like evaluate if the damage is good enough based on how much it's scarred or what the scar looks like or that sort of thing. And I think the reason for that is I know I'm not the only one who feels like the scars sort of validate the pain that I've experienced. For a lot of people, I think the scars hold a lot of meaning and weight because they validate what you've gone through, sort of. And so for me, if, for example, a scar is fading, it can make me feel like, oh, was the pain really as bad as I felt like it was or thought it was, if that makes sense. So the scar is a reminder of the pain that you went through and the validation of it, the emotional pain? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone had commented on one of the podcast platforms about they had listened to the psychology of self-injury scarring in season two, and they had mentioned that they self-injure to intentionally cause scarring and that they're one of those Mm -hmm. people. Was that you? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think it was me. Your experience is definitely not unique. There are other people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That have that has that function for them where maybe early on when you were in high school, it served one purpose, but like you said, it kind of shifted over time where maybe, and sometimes it can serve multiple purposes at one time, but yours changed and shifted to more of an external validation of your internal emotional distress. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's actually, I can kind of pinpoint almost where the shift started because there was a specific time in high school where without trying to be graphic, I guess, I injured in a way that accidentally caused more damage than I typically would have. When that happened, then it sort of felt like everything else wasn't good enough anymore, if that makes sense. Hmm. And so I think from there, it started to become more of like, 
not, I guess maybe kind of like a competition with myself where it's like, if it doesn't look like this, then I'm not really expressing the pain that I'm feeling. If someone were to tell you that, that that's their reason and function for self-injuring, would you agree with them that that's an accurate assessment? Well, no, because like the pain that you experience isn't ever going to be like actually portrayed properly by a physical symbol of some kind, right? I equate those things in my brain, but I know that I shouldn't, if that makes sense. (laughs) I shouldn't really look at my scars and think, oh, well... If I didn't have that, then my pain wasn't real. Like, I know that's a faulty way of thinking about it, but it is the way that my brain tends to function. That's an interesting how the rationale sometimes that our minds tell us to make sense of our experiences. And I was was Mm -hmm. wondering from the perspective of someone with lived experience, how you challenge that when you realize that it's unique to your situation or something that you wouldn't tell someone else about their self-injury. Yeah, I would never tell somebody, oh, your scars are worse than somebody else, so you must have gone through worse things. I would never tell someone that. There's whole pockets of the internet of people who talk to each other about those kinds of things. Like on Reddit specifically, I've seen forums where people will literally like take pictures of their scars and then they'll ask questions like, are my scars valid? They'll ask other people to tell them if it's, quote, bad enough. I think it all comes from that same idea of I need to express this pain and I want it to look to other people like I've experienced that pain. So it's it's kind of interesting. It's definitely I'm definitely not the only one, but it it is hard because it's not like you would just go around in your daily life and like ask people that. And for me, all of my scars are not really in super visible spots, mostly just on my hips and stuff. And so it's kind of like people don't see them anyways. And so then it creates this internal struggle for me where on the one hand, the whole point of me doing this is because I would want someone to see it and think that it looks bad, bad in quotes. But then on the other hand, I'm terrified for anybody to see it. And so I always make sure that it's going to be hidden. Which leads directly into my next question. Can you share about this struggle that comes with wanting to show scars while at the same time feeling possibly ashamed of them at times? Yeah. So that's been a major struggle of mine over the last few years, I would say, is just, I think what it really comes down to is just wanting to be seen just in general. And I think it it honestly has less to do with the scars themselves and has more to do with feeling like I have to keep up a facade or feeling like nobody knows who I really am, feeling like I'm not able to be honest about my struggles. So I've I've done a lot of work with vulnerability and what it means to let people in and be honest about things that you might be ashamed of. It definitely helps with that struggle, but I would say most of the time I do carry kind of this sense of I want someone to see my pain and see what I've experienced, but I'm too afraid to 
let someone see those things. And it's a hard place to be because it's sort of self-limiting, right? Like I'm the one that's keeping myself from this thing that I say that I want. (laughs) I think there's not really a super great answer for it aside from just learning how to push yourself just enough to kind of grow in that area without breaking yourself, you know, like learning who good people, good, safe people are and finding small ways to be open with them or things like that, where you can take small steps forward, but not necessarily. It's not like you have to just, it's not like you have to go on a podcast and tell everybody all about (laughs) your life. (laughs) It's taken me a long time to get to this point (laughs) for sure. I would not have done this even probably a year ago. So, And I was going to include this in the introduction. For those listening, I have now made it available for people that are interested in being on the podcast. Click on a link and submit on a Google Docs form a potential topic or person to be part of the podcast. I haven't announced it and I never, I guess this is the first time I'm doing it, but Allison found it and it was like hidden in there when you and I were talking before recording and the possibility of doing this episode, you had mentioned that you were really challenging yourself to get out and make this possibly part of your healing journey or recovery journey when it comes to the scars that you experience in the self-injury. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super grateful to be able to do this and push myself in it. So. I'm super grateful that you reached out and that we're able to have this conversation. And, and some of these questions that I'm asking you for listeners, they came from the little paragraph that Allison filled in there. So I was like, okay, I want to ask about how you can also share about the struggle that comes with wanting to show scars while at the same time maybe feeling ashamed of them. So I know that you're you're not the the only person out there. And I think it was beautifully stated that complex relationship that someone could have with their self-injury scars. So people that have lived experience can feel validated and people that don't can understand that it's just not an either or thing all the time. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned this desire to show people sometimes and then to push yourself a little bit. And you are also married and you and I have talked a little bit about previously how your husband has responded. And I'm curious to hear a little bit about what that's been like for you having your husband obviously be one of the few people probably that sees the scars and how he responds. Yeah. So it's been great because Zach is a very even keeled person, kind of go with the flow. And he has owned me for a really long time because we're high school sweethearts. And so He's been there with me through a lot of this struggle. So he has a lot of understanding that I would think possibly some people's partners, significant others might not have. It is nice to know that there is somebody that does see me and does see the scars and that I'm not totally alone in it. Like I said, he's very... He doesn't freak out. He's never said anything negative about them, but he also doesn't really go out of his way to point them out or really say anything about them at all. We've just come to a place where we just both know it's part of who I am. It's nice because it takes a little bit of the pressure off that I am always feeling about feeling like they're so significant. 
on the flip side, then with me and Zach, it's sort of like they're not really significant at all in that sense. It's like it's just part of me. They're just there and we don't really make a big deal about it, I guess. Would you want him to comment on them at any point? There have been times, yeah, where I have wanted him to or I've asked him straight up questions like, does this look bad? Like, does this look like it hurt a lot? Those kinds of things where in my like insecurity, I've looked for that validation in him before. His response is always, yeah. (laughs) But I try not to do that because I know that it's just kind of like feeding into what I already know isn't really a healthy comparison that I'm making, but I do ask him about them sometimes. Yeah, I imagine that could be hard to know how to respond to being your husband where probably doesn't want to invalidate, but also doesn't want to reinforce. Yeah, I think he does a good job with it because again, like he just doesn't make a big deal out of those kinds of things really. So he'll answer my questions, but then he's ready to just move on. You know, he's not sitting in it or being like, oh my gosh, that's so terrible. I'm so sorry. He doesn't start like sobbing or, (laughs) you know, which is good for me because it's an honest answer, but then we can kind of just move forward with the rest of our day together and not just be dwelling on it. That's great. And you've mentioned that there have been times, even in your adulthood through college and and later where you might have a lapse in self-injure These times, do you share those with your husband? Do you tell him or do you try to hide them from him? What's that like for your relationship? I do tell him about it. I've found that it's much easier on him if I tell him about it and he hears about it before he just finds out on accident. Because I've, it has happened both ways in our relationship and it can be kind of traumatic for a spouse to just stumble upon that, you know, because we are so close. It's obviously hard for him to see me in pain, just like in any relationship. It's a lot to carry when your spouse is hurting. And so I find that if I talk with him about it first, then that helps him to be able to respond and we can figure out what's going on and all of that kind of stuff versus more of a surprise emotional reaction kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Another question I think is important as we talk about scarring in particular, have you found that they are ever triggering for you? And if so, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so I definitely have felt that way. As I've gotten older and a lot of my scars have disappeared or started to fade or whatever, it can be triggering for me because I do feel that sense of validation from them. And so when they start to disappear, then I feel like I've lost I've lost that thing that I'm holding on to that says that I was hurting at that point in time. That's just kind of the nature of scars and the way our bodies heal. Even if it looks, I guess, bad at some point, then probably at some point in the future, it's going to look different as our bodies change and stuff. And so one thing that I did that has helped is 
I was talking to my therapist about it actually, and she was like, maybe you could design a tattoo that sort of encapsulates what you feel like your scars represent for you and get it tattooed. And then you have kind of a reminder on your body anyways, that hopefully won't (laughs) fade or disappear. (laughs) And so I did that and got the tattoo done. I'm I'm a tattoo artist, so I just did it on myself. That was a really good healing moment for me where I was able to I designed it in a way where it's like if somebody looked at it, they wouldn't necessarily be like, that girl struggles with (laughs) self-injury, but it has meaning to me. And so if I want to talk about it, I can. Like if somebody asks, what does that mean? I can kind of decide if in the moment, if I feel like talking about it or not. But it has helped a bit just with the part of me that wants that like physical reminder to be there. Other than that, I think the only thing that I've really found to help with that is just trying not to focus too much of my attention on them because sometimes it can just become like where you're like thinking about them a lot, I guess. If you can just kind of like stop your thought process of thinking about what they mean to you or or what they might look like to somebody else if they saw them or something, then that helps kind of keep from being triggered by that. I like the idea of that tattoo. It's interesting you gave yourself a tattoo, but you are a tattoo artist. Yeah. In the number of years, you know, having worked with young people, those who give themselves tattoos, <laughs> they don't usually turn out very well. Yeah. <laughs> oh. But uh, you did it and it wasn't the semicolon. It doesn't sound like it wasn't the butterfly, which are all great no. projects and helping with recovery or reminders of the life continuing and there's still hope. But I like that it has that personal meaning to you. That was, what a neat idea. Yeah, it's. I'll just share what it is. So people don't have to wonder. It's <laughs> a flower. It's just like the stem has been cut on it and there's like a, a pocket knife with it. So it's like a, a knife and a flower together. I wanted something that had a little bit of sense of maybe darkness to it, but also like hopefulness to it, if that makes sense. I was thinking through how do I represent self-injury in a way that I would know looking at it, that's what that means, but somebody else might not necessarily. So yeah, I came up with the knife and the flower together and it turned out really well but yeah I am a licensed tattoo artist please don't (laughs) please don't tattoo yourself at home just because you want to (laughs) (laughs) don't do this at home (laughs) yeah don't do this at home one of those yeah (laughs) thinking about the tattoo and thinking about the scarring we actually have an open poll for episode 31 about people with lived experience would they want to be asked by people about their scars So I guess my question for you would be twofold. One, do you welcome questions about your new tattoo? And two, do you welcome questions about your scars if people were to see them? That's a great question. I have had a few people ask about my tattoo and just about other tattoos that I have. I'm usually fine with it, but it kind of depends on who it is. If like a random person in a grocery store asks me a question about it, I probably would just not really want to say too much. Part of it is like a lot of people think that tattoos have to have like all this special meaning. And I have plenty of tattoos where that's not the case. I just like the tattoo. And so I get tired of telling people like, it's not, I just have it. It doesn't mean something. 
Anyways, so yeah, I would say usually I, I welcome questions about that tattoo or any of them, but prefer if it's somebody I already know versus just some random person that I see on the street or whatever. As far as my scars, I think, again, it's hard for me because it's kind of like a both and where on the one hand, I think I would want somebody to ask me about them, but I'm pretty sure if they did, I would freak out and lie or sh- or shrug it off and not say anything <laughs> because I don't have a lot of practice with that. Again, because the most I've done is in the summer, I go swimming like maybe two times, you know, and like I'll decide, am I going to wear a swimsuit where any of my scars are visible or am I not going to? And I will decide in that scenario based on like who's going to be around what I choose. But even then, I'm anxious the whole time. (laughs) I'm like, is anyone going to look at me funny or whatever, which I'm guessing like most people wouldn't even notice them anyways. But because I don't really ever expose them and don't have much practice, it is really hard for me. Don't have much practice. I like that terminology where with practice, you might feel a little more comfortable if they were to ask. But then again, how appropriate is it for someone to ask? And I know we did an episode at the beginning of the season where I interviewed a father and daughter about their experience with her self-injury, some friends of mine, and she welcomed questions about her scarring But it also depended on how it was asked or how it was worded because rather than someone saying, oh, I'm here to help you, like if you ever need, just out of the blue, I'm always here to talk if you need to. They just simply were used a respectfully curious approach and it's like, I noticed you're scarring. What's that about? (laughs) She was happy to tell them, but that was her journey. And I know everyone is different. You're explaining how complex and mixed feelings people may have with their relationship with their own self-injury scars. Yeah, I would say for me personally, especially random people, if someone asked me about it, I would probably literally just say it's none of your business. (laughs) (laughs) That would probably be my approach. If it was somebody that I knew and I knew that they were just either just curious, like they literally don't know what that is or are just concerned about me, then I would be happy to talk with them about it. Earlier, we were talking about your experience at church with your youth pastor. As someone whose faith is important to them, how do you make sense of your scarring in terms of your faith as a Christian? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think one of the big things that I have kind of come to terms with, if you will, is the idea that Jesus himself bears scars from the worst day of his life (laughs) and that he is God and obviously could have the opportunity to not have them be visible. I'm I'm referencing it for anyone who is confused right now. The nails in his hands and his feet from the cross and the spot in his side where he was speared. There's a story of a disciple who didn't believe that he was resurrected until he was able to put his hands in the wound or the spot where the nails had been. And Jesus tells him to do that. So I just think it's really powerful that Jesus bore those physical reminders of what he went through. And we were designed that way. 
to Scar. I think God had purpose in that because I think of really any kind of scar, whether it's self-inflicted or otherwise, they all tell stories. If you just fall off a bike and scrape your knee and and you have a scar on your knee and someone asks you, then you say, well, I fell off a bike. All of those stories are important. And again, that is the way that we were designed. That's the way our bodies heal. And so I've found a lot of peace in that, just knowing that we, as Christians, believe that God became fully human in the person of Jesus. And when you become fully human, it's it's all of the things that go along with being human. And part of that is scarring. So I'm reflecting him in that way. I love that. I love how you make meaning in that, in your faith, because I know a lot of people experience shame and that can come from their faith communities. So I wanted to ask you about that, to know how you made sense of that. And it sounds like your youth pastor was supportive, is supportive, your husband, your current faith community, as well as how you make sense of Jesus's own wounds, being fully God and fully man. So yeah, thank you for sharing your experience of that. Yeah, for sure. There was this one time when I was in college and my husband and I were engaged. And so we were doing like a premarital counseling thing. So we just met with someone. It was a pastor and he was like an older guy. And I don't know why I even bothered to bring it up, but we were, he was talking about something. And for some reason, I thought that I should share about my struggle with self-injury. And he totally was like, said that it was like demonic and totally like was very surprised and kind of taken aback that I had struggled with this before. It was like super uncomfortable. In the moment, I didn't really know how to respond. And so I just kind of was like, oh, okay, and didn't really say anything else. And I think he kind of moved on from it quickly because he didn't really have anything to offer. And for anyone who's curious, I think he probably got that from like, there is a story in the Gospels about a man who was possessed and was chained up in a cave and was, I guess, doing something with rocks that was like hurting themselves or something like that. It, it's in there somewhere. And I think maybe that's where this guy got it from. But it, it was, I think, the only experience I've had with a pastor where I was like, very you have no idea what's going on and you should probably stop talking so yeah that was an interesting experience i think that's not as uncommon as it should be unfortunately yeah, for sure anyone that listened to malika's story in season one she was accused of being demon possessed and so they did yeah. exorcisms and sometimes i i think about how traumatizing that could be and then Brittany tinsley her lived experience shared about she was told it was idolatry or worshiping yeah. idols. Historically, when we talk about the research in self-injury early on, the verse that you mentioned came up quite a bit in early research mm -hmm. in the late 1990s, early 2000s about Mark 5, 5, where it was the demon-possessed man that was living in the tombs. Anytime they tried to chain him, he would break the chains and he would yep. cry out night and day and cut himself with stones. And so mm -hmm. a lot of people assume that because someone cussed them, they must be demon-possessed. But it's interesting that that pastor's response was just to 
just say that and then move on. (laughs) (laughs) I think he just, he didn't know what else to say. And I didn't agree with him. And I also had framed it in a way of like, oh, this is a thing that like happened in the past, but it's not a problem anymore. And so I think he just was like, well, she seems fine now. And then then just moved on from it. But yeah, it's definitely, I think, fairly common, unfortunately, But I think that what a lot of people miss is like, even in that passage, there's so many things going on aside from just he's cutting himself with stones. You know, there's so many other things happening there that would point to possession, I guess, versus your everyday average person who's like self-injuring. So big distinctions there, I think. And I think people, that's where they get the idea of self-injury sometimes being a form of demon possession. But one thing that I respond to in those contexts is if you read that and you'll notice Jesus never mentioned anything about the self-injury. He didn't address it directly. Mm -hmm. He didn't judge or shame or call it out as it was. Yeah. Yeah. He spoke to the demon. Yep. Totally. I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah, I kind of forgot about it. I just like blocked it from my memory. I think I was like, that was weird. Um, (laughs) But then when I was thinking about how people have responded when I have talked about it, then I remembered that there was that one time. I think he's the only other pastor aside from my youth pastor that I've ever brought it up to. I don't think there's any reason anybody else would have known about it. So those are really my only two experiences which were very polar opposite but my youth pastor the way he responded definitely was a lot more impactful for me I think especially because I already had that relationship with him it was like sort of ongoing support versus this was just like an old dude that had bad opinions about stuff and no relationship (laughs) then I guess I guess he was doing yeah premarital counseling that is a relationship there yeah I think it It wasn't very far into it, and I didn't know him that well, and so. Well, even Brittany's story, you know, she shared with one youth pastor, and it was a horrible experience, and then she shared with another youth pastor, and it was a wonderful, well, emotional. Like, for me, I became tearful hearing her share Mm -hmm. the tender response of the second youth pastor. So people can have different responses based on their assumptions about the behavior, and you use the word stigma and stigmatizing earlier, so I think that can be a form of stigma. Yeah, and I think I didn't mention before, but my youth pastor has personal experience with like mental health issues just in general. And so he already had that frame of reference, I think, versus some pastors have this idea that mental health issues are not real or they're bad or I don't know exactly what it is. Sometimes you'll hear a rhetoric like, I even heard this from my dad growing up where I was like, if you are depressed or something, it's because there's some sort of unresolved sin in your life that you need to fix. So it's your fault, basically. (laughs) Everything's your fault. And so there's a lot of people in the church that I think like pastors and even just people that attend that sort of feel like it's just all about sin versus not sin. My experience has been very different from that. And I've definitely learned that it really doesn't have to do with what you're doing and what's quote right or wrong. But in my faith, what's been helpful for me is recognizing 
the humanity of Jesus's emotions and how he really displayed a wide range of human emotions and experiences. And we were designed to have those emotions and feelings. And sometimes something happens in your brain or something happens to you and it the wires get a little <laughs> crossed or whatever. And, and then you can struggle, but it's not because of like sin or anything like that. You're not being punished. Good feedback. I will let that sit. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. How have you used your experience overall and your journey overall of self-injury for the better? One of the main ways that I do that now is I volunteer at the youth group at our church and I mentor high school girls there. I've got freshmen right now, but I've been doing it for a number of years. So I've graduated a class or two out. It's really cool to be able to just support high school students. And every once in a while, I come across somebody who's struggling with the same things that I have, and I'm able to offer them hope and just say, like, I get it. Because I think one of the things still to this day that has been hard for me is like, I had a lot of people supporting me, but I have yet to meet anybody older than me who struggled with the same things. I don't think I've ever had a conversation with someone where they're like, yeah, I get it. I've been there. Like I knew some peers, I guess, in high school, but like it's a very different thing. So it's been really cool to be able to be that person for somebody younger because I think if I had known somebody like that when I was in high school, it would have really helped my journey to feel like I wasn't the only person who felt that way, you know? That's incredible. So knowing when you were a teenager, how helpful it would have been to have talked to an adult who'd been there and lived through yeah. it would have helped and meant so much to you. So you're doing exactly that for other high school, middle school, high school students mm -hmm. coming full circle. That's great. Yeah, it's been really, really cool to be able to help in that way. And I just think that a lot of times, especially with self-injury, there's a lot of stigma around it and people don't like to talk about it. And a lot of people, I think, assume that when you get older, you'll just like grow out of it. So people my age, especially, or people who are in their 30s or 40s, they don't really talk about it as much because people don't expect it from you, I guess. And so sometimes we get scared to say anything, but if you can find a way to use your story to help somebody else, then it really makes it feel like it's not just all of this bummer stuff you've been through that's just pain and, and you're just pushing it away and saying, that sucked, you know, um, but being able to do something with it can like really help your healing journey for sure. And here you are sharing on the podcast. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Overall, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents? Yeah, I think the thing I would recommend to parents is just really listening to your kids with compassion and not being reactive as hard as it is being able to just kind of be curious and again like just be compassionate with the way that you're talking to your child and not getting like mad at them or something because 
they'll learn pretty quickly that you're not safe and then you really can't help them anymore after that, unfortunately. And in line with this, I don't ask everyone, but your youth pastor was really helpful for you. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to other, I guess, youth workers, whether youth pastors or people that serve youth? Yeah, I would say one thing is to make sure you're not shaming your students or just telling them not to do that. Because sometimes in church communities, it's really easy to just be like, well, these are the things you're supposed to do and these are the things you're not supposed to do. So just stop sinning and then you'll be fine. Um, (laughs) Just pray about it. It's going to be okay. I think a lot of pastors and volunteers and stuff don't have a good understanding of self-injury. And so they can kind of like freak out when somebody says something about it. I guess another thing I would say, aside from not shaming people, is also just make sure you're educated about what it is and reasons why people might do it. And also just realize that it's a lot more common than people tend to think. It's just that nobody talks about it because they're afraid to. If you find out, especially if somebody honestly goes out of their way to tell you about it, that's a really big deal. So Again, like with parents having compassion for them, they don't need to hear that it's sinful for them to be doing it or anything. Like pretty much most people who self-injure, I would say, already think that it's probably not something that they should do, you know, because it kind of just inherently goes against the way that your body should function, you know, (laughs) like you're not really supposed to want to cause yourself pain. So staying away from that and just making sure that they that the student is given a voice and is listened to. And then obviously, if you feel like professional support is needed, then make sure to encourage the student in that direction. And one final thing I would say is before you talk to parents, make sure that you have a conversation with students first and try to encourage your student to possibly reach out to parents and see how that goes. Because like, I know for me, If my youth pastor had just gone and told my mom about it, I never would have said anything to him ever again. That would have been it. That would have been the end. And I probably wouldn't have talked to anybody else at that point because I would have felt like no one can really be trusted with my secrets, sort of. So That's good. That I wasn't even planning to ask that, but I'm glad I did. That was good. Thank you. (laughs) What would you recommend to professionals, clinicians, therapists, psychologists, researchers, That one's a hard one. I think the only thing I can really think of, aside from just make sure that you have done your research and you know what you're talking about, because I think some, like I've gone to a counselor or two that I think just didn't really have a great grasp of what self-injury is and why people do it. And that can just be more damaging. But the other thing is, one specific thing I would say is Be careful about the way that you talk about the severity of wounds or scars because that in itself can kind of accidentally be triggering to people who feel like their wounds or their scars are what validates them. Because you hear people say things like surface wounds or like that sort of thing where it's like, yeah, maybe medically that is an accurate description, but it doesn't feel that way to somebody who is injuring it can make them feel like they're not doing enough i guess yeah that's a that's a really good recommendation 
What would you recommend to other people with lived experience of self-injury? Definitely, if you haven't already, find a safe person to talk to. That's like the biggest thing that helped me is just, again, feeling like I am seen by somebody and somebody understands, somebody is listening. And they don't they don't have to understand all the way. A lot of people, unless they've been through this experience, can't totally always understand. But safe people will try and they'll ask questions and they won't freak out at you. So find somebody like that to talk to. And then I would just encourage everyone, like, as you find healing, consider ways that you can share your story or use it for something better. Obviously, depends a lot on like where you're at in your journey, but it has definitely helped me a lot. And I like that too, because with a lot of our conversations on this podcast, it's not meant to be only for parents, because we know that more than just young people self-injure, adults self-injure. And hearing you talk about how you have used your story and your experience for good, you've used your experience to bring hope and healing to others Mm -hmm. that are younger than you. So to know that even as an adult who might struggle with self-injury here and there even, that you still have a lot to offer. Mm -hmm. I like that. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for opening up and sharing with us your thoughts and feelings related to self-injury, your own self-injury, your own scarring, and my intrusive, seemingly intrusive questions at times. I thank you for your patience with that. I feel like your responses are going to be so helpful for so many people. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been great to have an opportunity to share and I just want to help people who feel the same way as me not feel so alone. So We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful and would like to give back, Please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to interact with us, we welcome you to respond to our questions and polls under each episode in Spotify. This podcast is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.